Good morning, Northland Church. Well, first things first, this morning on this special weekend, I'd like to ask, even though you just sat down, if you're a veteran in the room with us today, would you stand right back up so we could acknowledge you and thank you for your service and your sacrifice. We are so grateful to you and those of you who may be online who have served, we thank you. And you know, this is a special Veterans Day. It would be 5 a.m. Florida time this morning. If you went back 100 years from that moment, you'd find yourself in Paris on 11-11 at 11 a.m. The armistice ending World War I was signed. And out of that came Armistice Day, where we celebrate the value of peace and those who fight to uphold that peace in the end, and that became Veterans Day, and here we are after 100 years. And so it's kind of a special one that we celebrate together today. So today is the third week in our series on life-giving generosity, this adventure of grace that we have with God. And Pastor Matt has laid this outstanding biblical foundation over the last couple of weeks, and we'll continue to build from there going forward this week. And some of you have, you know, like the gift of giving and you're loving this. And you're like, can we just keep this series going into 2019? I love talking about money and generosity. But others of you, maybe not so much. And you're like, really? Another one on money? We're going to keep doing this? Uh, and I actually found an article that I think may have been written by somebody in that second camp. So we're going to throw that up on the screen. I thought we'd enjoy this together. Local man relieved after spiritual gift test comes back negative for giving. And uh, a, you can read the little paragraph there, but local man Trent, Trent Shepherd, he's relieved to find he doesn't have the gifts of mercy, compassion, or giving, and so he's off the hook. Uh, this is satire. This is from a website called the Babylon Bee that's quite funny, and, um, and so it's not a real article, but so often like Mr. Trent, we hope we can opt out or go around the money conversation. And the point of this series is to say, let's jump in together. If we're going to be fully alive in Christ, it's going to involve talking about our finances. And so today we're going to be looking at the story of the rich young ruler out of Mark chapter 10. If you want to move there, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 31 out of Mark chapter 10. But before we go to Mark, we're going to go to another gospel for a quick statement out of John's introduction to the life of Jesus. One of the things he said about Jesus in John 1:17 is that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so grace and truth. Grace, this gracious presence, the love of God that comes to us, and yet at the same time a hard-nosed truth that Jesus was never afraid to be direct in sharing the truth of God. And it's in honor of that idea today that we have this message called a loving challenge when looking at the story of the rich young ruler. And I think the two things that I hope we pull out of this, one is the deep love of Christ for each and every one of us, like he loved the rich young ruler and yet he didn't shy away from giving this young man a challenge when it came to his money. And I believe he has a challenge for each of us to our cultural and personal perspectives on our finances as well. So with that said, let's dive into what may be one of the most challenging texts in the New Testament, but we'll look at it together. Mark 10, verse 17, moving through verses 31. And as he was setting out on his journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. 
Don't bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And here comes the loving challenge. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers, sisters, mothers, children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray as we look at this passage. Father, we thank you for the words of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we've just read. We thank you for the loving challenge that you give to us when it comes to our finances. And I pray, God, that we could connect this morning an adventure of grace with a different perspective on money, and that we would be open to receive your teaching. I pray that every distraction would be out of the way, and that any inadequacies that I carry, and there are many, would also be out of the way, and that we could connect with you, Lord, today as your body. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the more I've looked at this passage over the last four years, really, and then especially in the last couple months getting ready for this message, I've become convinced it's not so much about the money. It's about the money, but it's not really about the money. It's more about discipleship with Jesus. It just so happens that Jesus is saying the road to discipleship leads right through your money, and there's no detour available. He says, if you want to do this thing for real, you want to be my disciple and follow me, we're going to talk about your finances. We're going to talk about generosity. And for my wife Megan and I, this has been true. We feel like our discipleship journey has been in lockstep with our generosity journey. And we were actually, you know, God called us out of business and into ministry. That was a big step. But then in late 2016, we're in ministry, and God gave us this loving challenge financially as we were planning 2017 to give in a way that we hadn't given before. And uh, I'll share a couple of numbers in this, mostly because uh, about four years ago, one of my colleagues and I in business school, we ended up writing a paper that became a book, and that was called God and Money. I've shared a little bit about that. Uh, and in the process of, of, of writing that book, we ended up sharing most of our personal financial details. And so we're in this place today where tens of thousands of people around the country know all the details of our personal financial lives. And so about what's a thousand more friends to share with this morning. And so um, we felt the loving challenge from God, like he was saying, would you try to give away $20,000 in 2017? And for some, that's a big number. For some, that's a small number. But for us, it felt like an impossibly big giving challenge. And we were going, I don't know if we can do that. But what happened is, you know, we bumped up our church giving here at Northland. We also had other opportunities. And, and we would 
give a big gift and God would take us on this adventure of grace and then show us another place to give and we would give there and, and he kept refilling the coffers and it was amazing throughout that year. And we got to the end of the year and added things up and we realized we had given away $36,494 in the year. And I'll tell you that our finances at the end of that process were healthier than they had been when we started working for a ministry, give away 36 grand. It's like, how's that possible? It's really not. But with God, all things are possible. And so he shaped our heart through that amazing experience. And this year has been onward from there. And there have been more stories that have come. But he's made us more like him through the adventure of giving. And by the way, I know that there are people in this room with us today, many people in our family that have a family income below $36,000. And God's, God doesn't mind that one bit. And there are others who say, yeah, I gave away $36,000 or more last month or maybe last week. And, and God's not impressed with that. He loves each of us and he invites each of us into this adventure regardless of what the amounts may be. He's looking at our hearts. So here's where I'd like to go today. As we look at this text, first of all, I want to break down the text and share three key insights or thoughts from the story of the rich young ruler that we just read. And then we're going to ask, what does this mean for us in the 21st century? How would we apply this to our lives as central Floridians? We're also going to have a great three-minute video that we're going to watch and a special friend or guest who's going to come up on stage. And so I think we're going to have fun for the next half hour as we dive in together. But the first movement in this passage really is where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. And if we can put ourselves back in the context that he was in, there's no internet. Jesus doesn't have a website. There's no phones. He doesn't have a staff you can email. And so if Jesus is in the other town, you don't get to talk to him. And the, te- the context here is Jesus is leaving on a journey. And for whatever reason, the rich young ruler is in this town. There goes Jesus, and he's realized that rabbi, that teacher, that special man who I've wanted to ask a question to, he's leaving my chances, slipping through my fingers. And instead of letting that happen, the eagerness in his heart leads him. It says he ran up to Jesus. So here he comes. He's literally running out of town trying to catch Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. And he finally gets there and he kneels and he says, good teacher. And then he goes, sorry, just a second. Let me catch my breath. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he came to Jesus. He wanted to be a disciple. He wanted to be on the team of our Lord. And yet we see what happens. He walked away sad in the end. This was his great moment where Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, looked him in the eyes and said, come follow me. And we think about Abraham, leave your father's homeland. Moses, come out of retirement to set a slave people free. Peter, leave behind your boats. We have all these biblical stories of the great risk, that moment of the call. And here was the rich young ruler's call. And he knew it was his moment, but he walked away sad because he couldn't let go of his attachment to money. And so there's a sadness there. And one of the things that it makes us ask is, you know, How rich was this guy? Because if he's super, super rich, I kind of have pictured him growing up as like a guy with palaces all over the Middle East and servants that fan him with palm fronds. And if he's that rich, then it's not really my story. And so it's important to ask that. And I've seen some modernized paintings of him even driving a Ferrari. And Jesus is standing next to the Ferrari saying, come follow me. And that's the rich young ruler. And and that may be true. But my co-author and I, when we were writing our book, that question was bothering us. How rich is rich in the Bible? 
And so we did a whole bunch of research. We looked at a bunch of sources. We went back and said, what did an average laborer make? What did a rich person, a landowner, which would have been a wealthy person in Roman society in this season of, of world history 2,000 years ago, how rich was rich? And I'll save you all the calculations, but we landed on something like if his income was around $20,000 per year, that might have been a typical very rich person in that age. And we live, let's not forget, in, in the largest, significantly most prosperous nation in human history. Very, very prosperous. And so almost all of us in this room perhaps are part of a family that makes more than $20,000 per year or at least close to that or maybe multiples of that. And we realize because of our cultural context, we are all, in a way, the rich young ruler. And the risk factor that I carry and that you carry is that we could be just like him, clinging to the pursuit of things rather than being open to the call of Christ on our lives. Now, uh, each time I've had the great opportunity to share here at Northland, uh, my wife Megan tries to convince me of something, and that's that we should buy a farm animal. And I should use it as a prop on stage, and then we're going to take it home. She grew up on acreage with animals, and so when I preached on Psalm 23, of course, it was, can we get a sheep? And you can bring it up on stage, it'll be so great, and then it'll just come live in our backyard when we're done with the weekend. And uh, we didn't do that with Psalm 23, but this week, with the camel at play, we thought, you know, why not? And so with a little help from the Northland team, we have a camel of sorts that's going to join here on stage. In the story of the rich young ruler, here comes the camel. I've been told it's a she. Um, thank you very much. Nice. <laughs> She's, uh, we've had a couple services together, so we've grown close. And, um, and I've been told her name. She's been named by the Northland team Camille. So Camille the camel is here to help us. I also have a needle with an eye. And some, some people have been nervous, but we, won't, we need her for the Monday night service. We won't pop her uh, with the needle. But I think when Jesus made his statement, it's likely, given the context about the eye of the needle and the camel, there was probably a camel right over there in the field next door. And so it wasn't random. It was a statement about where they were. But after the rich young ruler walks away, the disciples are kind of stunned into silence, like, Jesus, what just happened? And then Jesus doesn't back off. He actually doubles down. He says how difficult it is for those with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then the disciples still stunned silent. And then he doubles down once more. And he says, children, I'm telling you how difficult it is for those with wealth, like this guy, his $20,000 income, the rich young ruler, to come into the kingdom of God. It would be easier for a camel like Camille to go through the eye of a needle and the eye of a needle, as you know, is the little circle at the top. It's tiny. And interpreting this text, it's very difficult what Jesus said. And, and there have been teachers over the centuries, actually, who have said, uh, you know, there was this gate in Jerusalem, and, and the camels had to unload all their stuff and then squeeze and get down on their knees to go through the eye of the needle gate. And that's a great message. It's encouraging. It, that's actually been a popular teaching in prosperity circles because the implication would be if we get on our knees and we're humble, we can make it at least. But architecturally, there's no evidence for such a gate existing. And it's a teaching that makes us more comfortable, but I, it's not grounded in reality as far as I can tell. But what is grounded in reality is that the phrase through the eye of a needle is older than Jesus. He didn't make that up. 
There was an old Persian phrase about elephants going through the eye of a needle. That was the largest animal they had. And then it became a Jewish phrase that we see in some of the writings that existed before Jesus, like a camel through the eye of a needle, which was the largest animal they had in their society. And so we see this phrase or this expression that's hyperbole, and it's kind of like how we say when pigs can fly. And it's almost like Jesus was saying, yeah, guys, a rich guy coming into my kingdom, that'll happen when pigs can fly. And what do we see? The disciples are exceedingly astonished. They're shocked. And one of them asked the appropriate question, which is, then Jesus, who can be saved? Like this guy ran to catch you, but you set the bar so high that he walked away sad. Like, what are you doing, Lord? Could you explain this to us? And then we get that beautiful line with man, it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And I believe what he wanted to take us, what wanted us to take away from that is that our salvation is impossible. We cannot be generous enough to earn the favor of God. Rich or poor, we can give it all away. It's not enough. But with God, all things are possible. And it's this adventure of grace idea that Pastor Matt's been teaching on the last couple of weeks, that if we truly encounter the magnificent grace of God, that he has saved us in our unworthiness and brought us into his family, then out of that, there's this volcano of joyful generosity that comes up and suddenly I let go of my financial resources and I say, Lord, you can have all of me, you can have my life, including my money. And that's how the camel, Camille, gets through the eye of the needle, is this idea that it's not our generosity that saves us, but our generosity is the visible evidence that we have been saved and that we have encountered the radical, generous grace of God. The third and final thing I want to pull out of the passage itself is this notion about persecution and giving up relationships and money. And Jesus gives that, that long list. He's like, anyone who gives up, Peter says, you know, we've left everything. Jesus says, yeah, you gave up family relationships and you gave up wealth when you chose to follow me. And often becoming a disciple of Jesus might mean tension in a family. It might mean losing relationships and because of the call to radical generosity, your assets may be lower than they would have been if you hadn't chosen to follow Jesus. And he says, but as you give all that up, you get it back a hundredfold here in this time. And I think by that he means you come into the family of faith. You get the body of Christ, a community of believers, and the hope that comes with that. But then he says, you'll get a hundredfold here in this life with persecutions. So it's like we're doing this seesaw. Jesus says, you're going to give up money in relationships, but you're going to get it back a hundredfold. But wait a minute, it's going to come with persecutions. And, and he's telling us, guys, it's sometimes a mixed bag. It's not always health, wealth, prosperity, happiness every single day of your life as a disciple. There are challenges, but I'll be there with you. And then the clincher in the end is when he says, and in the age to come, eternal life. And so it's like... The only time for sure, for sure, for sure that you know I've received my reward for following Jesus, for being a disciple, is on the other side in the age to come when we enter into the glory of the Father and receive eternal life. And so we look at this passage in this teaching and we go, wow, this is tough stuff. Our camel friend and all of us and I, we say, this is really hard. Have we cherry-picked like the hardest teaching from Jesus on money and then we're focusing on that? And so I wanted to share a little table that Jesus talked about money all the time, but what we're going to put on the screen is seven of his most significant engagements with the topic of money. 
And these are, you can find them throughout the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some of them appear in multiple places. Feel free to take a picture. This would be a profitable Bible study to engage in. What does Jesus say about money? This could be a whole sermon series in and of itself. And if we were to summarize them or attempt to summarize them, Jesus delivers a powerful warning more than anything else in the area of money. He says money could stunt your maturity. Money can block your salvation or cause your spiritual failure. In fact, it can lead to a wasted life. And then we get to the rich young ruler. Money can prevent discipleship. It can also be your false god, and it can cause unhelpful worry. And we look at this list and we go, man, that's not popular. That's not what we hear a lot of about money on the radio or in our common conversations. And yet we look at what Jesus himself actually said. And he's saying, I love you so much, my son or my daughter, that I've got to warn you, this is the thing that could trip you up and keep you out of my family, and I want you in my family, so I'm going to raise the bar and raise the warning high. The first reference on this slide is to the third soil in the parable of the sower, and we see Matthew 13, 22, and that's the only one off this that I want to directly read today. He said, as for the seeds sown among the thorns... The cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches choked out the word and it bore no fruit. And he's saying that the gospel can spring up in your life but then get crowded out by the deceitfulness of riches. And in a society full of rich young rulers where almost all of us have a higher lifestyle than the actual rich young ruler might have enjoyed, he's saying some of you are going to attend church and you'll profess your love for me. You may come to a Bible study. You've got a fish on your car and a cross on your wall and a mat in front of your front door that says blessings on those who enter. But all the while, you're chasing the next job. You're trying to sell your house to buy a nicer house in a better neighborhood. You're planning amazing vacations. You've got home renovation projects going. You're upgrading to luxury brands of cars, and you're doing landscaping projects all the same time. And, and in the midst of all of this, you've been choked out as my disciple, and you're not bearing fruit. I've invited you to be my disciple, but you've been chasing these things. And we might say, well, Lord, is that, that's unfair. Is it wrong to have a nice living room, or is it wrong to go on a vacation that my family has felt like we've needed? And I think absolutely not. None of those things are sinful in and of themselves, and he smiles on our enjoyment of his good creation. But he does say, if you look at the sum total of your life, and that's what it looks like, and you're pursuing things, and you're pursuing possessions, and you're pursuing the next raise to get more money to do more of that stuff, and you're not giving your time and talent and treasure to advance the kingdom of God, and he says, you haven't truly surrendered and submitted to become my disciple. I want to share a video, this quick three-minute video that I mentioned, and it's, it's a fun one, and it's actually on the opposite end of the spectrum. This is not the rich young ruler. These are the opposite of rich young rulers, and yet have encountered the amazing grace of God through their generosity. So let's take a look at the handful of rice story, and then we'll continue. Lal Rua lives in a tiny remote village in Mizoram. Her family sustains on a meager income of less than one dollar a day. Despite abject poverty, 
simple women like Lalua are spearheading a revolution that is sweeping the world of missions. Their movement, Bufai Thang, or a handful of rice. Bufai Thang is a practice where each Mizo family puts aside a handful of rice every time they cook a meal and later gather it and offer to the church. The church in turn sells the rice and generates income to support its work. Rice has been the staple food of the people of Mizoram. You are giving what is basic, essential, fundamental to your life. You are sharing that with God. With the passage of time, people have given more than rice, vegetables, firewood, cereals, and their regular tithes empowering the church to be self-sufficient. Mizoram state is the most backward state in India. And we are the poorest of the, of the poor. But still, we can raise funds for the ministry of the Lord. At the close of this last physical year, we received altogether around 13 million US dollars. Out of that, 12% of our total income is from the handful of rice collection. With 1,800 missionaries in India and many overseas, the Mizoram Church is known as a missionary church world over. This success is attributed to their selfless and creative giving. It is not our richness or our poverty that make us serve the Lord but our willingness. So we Mizou people say, as long as we have something to eat every day, we have something to give to God every day. line as long as we have something to eat every day we have something to give to God every day and it may be today that you're here and you're going you know I've, I've been following Jesus I've been kneeling before him like the rich young ruler for some time saying Lord I want to follow you but I've never I've never really given I've never taken that step and I I thought that video might be a powerful way for the Lord to say hey what's your handful of rice what's that first step you might take engaging in generosity like these wonderful people, brothers and sisters in Christ across the world, you can step into partnering with his kingdom today. I've got a friend who does a lot of work on the frontier of the gospel in difficult places. And he told me a story recently. I said, what's new? He said, I just got back and I was next door to a country very hostile to the gospel. And I was in a, a mud floor barn and we were sitting on that floor in the dirt and um, I was surrounded by pastors in training. They were receiving their theological education. They had been there for a couple of years. And, and here we were, and they were all wearing veils. 
And he said, I later found out that the veils, they wore them for the full two years, and it was to protect their anonymity under torture so that they wouldn't reveal the other Christians later on down the road. And he said, we sat down and they handed me a bowl of simple gruel and it was going to be dinner. And I asked those in training, I said, are you going to join us? Are you going to eat? And they said, oh no, we're fasting 30 days because our ordeal begins next month. He said, your ordeal, what do you mean? And they said, well, we're going back to our country. And after we cross in, having violated our visa stay outside of country, we'll be interrogated and tortured for a period of days or weeks or even months. But when they get tired of us, They'll set us free, and we'll go be reunited with our brothers and sisters, and that's when we will become pastors in their community. And we'll teach them what you've taught us, and we'll raise them up in Christ, and we know eventually we'll probably get caught. And when we get caught, we'll be executed, and then we can have our rest in Christ. And they're telling this story, and they said, you know, we were baptized, and we knew we were baptized and raised to new life in Christ, and we celebrate that, but we acknowledge we were baptized into the death of Jesus, death to our own plans and our own ambitions, and we're fully surrendered to his purposes. And my friend, with tears in his eyes as he's told me this story, and I'm tearing up as he's sharing it, he said, you know, they'll never get to stand on a stage at a big church, a beautiful place like this here at Northland, and tell their story to applause. They'll never be made into saints by the Catholic Church. They may die as anonymous martyrs that only a few young believers have known. And yet, how much do we have to learn from them, from their sense of all-in dedication and sacrifice for the gospel? I had another friend who had recently emptied his 401k to fund kingdom work. And I heard about this, and I also knew that he happened to be a graduate of Harvard Business School, so he wasn't financially illiterate. He knows about money and how it all works, and he knew what's implied in that decision. And I challenged him. I said, don't you think that's foolish? What are you thinking in doing that? And he said, you know, he had been to some places like this. He said, I've got brothers and sisters in Christ on this globe who are being asked to lay down their lives for the Gospels. How big of a deal? Why don't you tell me how big of a deal do you think my 401k is in light of that? And I was stunned into silence as someone who still had my own 401k. But I said, wow, that looks like a camel going through the eye of a needle motivated by the grace of God. So here's where I believe this leaves us as a church family here in Central Florida. We may not have that radical call to the mission field or to lay down our lives for the gospel, but I do believe that we all have the radical call from Jesus Christ to simplify our lives so that we have something to give away and that he invites us to the intentional task of organizing our lives around the beautiful, life-giving, grace-driven task of giving money away, which is something that takes intentionality and planning in order to execute. So I want to share four quick thoughts or quick stories, and maybe the Holy Spirit speaks through one of those and says, hey, that's for you. That's what I want you to do. Or maybe it's something totally different. The most important point I could make would be that Jesus loves you, not your money. He's not a fundraiser. He's a disciple maker, but he just realizes that money can be the thing that stands in the way of our growth in Christ. And so four areas of our personal finance to prayerfully consider, our budget, our cars, our house, and this idea of something called a giving savings account. And to walk through these, the budget, 
Doing work with generous giving where I work in terms of my day job, I get to travel the country and meet with generous people from coast to coast, hundreds or thousands of conversations that have been so wonderful to have. And I would say the best, best practice I could share from joyfully generous people, especially those with an above average income, is this idea of a financial finish line or a lifestyle cap. And it's people all around the country who have said, you know, I've been blessed by God, and I'm just gonna say anything above X dollars per year is maybe I'll pay off some debts, I might save or give, but it's not gonna inflate my lifestyle. If God brings increase, as Randy Alcorn says, it's to increase my standard of giving, not my standard of living. And I've seen people make that decision at the median family income, or at 75,000, or 100, 120, whatever the case may be. The Bible doesn't tell us what the only lifestyle we have to live is, but it does call us to generosity, and I just wanna commend that best practice. That's something my wife and I have done. There's a lifestyle cap that we won't go beyond, and the excess, if God brings it, will be for his kingdom. As far as houses and cars are concerned, you know, our culture tells us that as we get more resources, we should buy more and nicer and better of these things. And I believe the loving challenge from Jesus might be, would we consider a countercultural approach where we are living more modestly or even going backwards if we've gone very nice in these areas in order to fund the great commission work of the kingdom of God? And one quick story I'll share on that is from one of my very best friends. He had always wanted an Acura. He had his eyes set on an Acura. And you know how you daydream about that when you want a car. It's, it's the thing you're thinking about. And Finishing business school, he had the financial resources. He could write the check with cash and get the Acura. Any financial advisor would say, you're good to go, no problem. And yet, as he was evaluating that decision, he remembered at some point, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, that his grandma had an old Mercury Grand Marquis parked in her garage that she hadn't driven for five years. Four flat tires, but he invested some money into the car, got it running again, and said, I'm not gonna get the Acura, I'm gonna drive my grandma's old car. And he said, you know, that the thing about my old uncool car is that it trains my heart to remember that my value is not in my stuff. It's in who I am in Jesus Christ. And not only that, it's cheap and that frees up more money that I can invest in God's kingdom every month. And then finally, this whole idea of a giving savings account, I would just say, you know, I think a good generosity plan looks like faithful giving to our church community. It looks like faithful giving if we've sponsored a child or support other organizations, but there's this bucket or slice of our giving that's spontaneous, Holy Spirit-led generosity. And sometimes even if the dollar amounts are smaller, that's the most fun giving you can do. And so this is like setting up a savings account. And that savings account is kind of like an emergency fund, but it's a giving fund, and it's funded ahead of time, premeditated generosity for someone that I haven't met yet. And then you're prepared when you're out to lunch and the waiter or waitress says, I've been diagnosed with cancer. You say, God bless you. Here's a check for $500. And can you afford it? Yes, because you set aside money specifically for giving. I heard a story of someone who literally did that and the waiter said, all these Christians come eat here on Sunday and it's nice of them to say, I'll pray for you, but the reality is I'm broke and you're the first person to give me money, which is the thing that I desperately need right now. And they were receiving the love of God through that gift. And so as we move towards closing, I would just encourage you to say yes to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And two thoughts as we close. Number one is how is God asking you to organize your life around giving money away? What's the next step in doing that? 
And I will say, by the way, that this sermon series, as Pastor Matt shared a couple weeks ago, it's not about Northland. It's about the words that we find in our scriptures that encourage us from Jesus to lean into generosity. And if the net result of this message was for you to make a big new gift to some other gospel-advancing ministry, then praise God for that. I'm not on staff here at Northland, but I do serve on the finance committee, and I'm sitting in those meetings regularly where we're planning out what is our spending going to look like, what's next year going to look like, what resources are going to be available, and we are working hard to steward every dollar for the glory of God. But again, this sermon series, we hope that you'll give where God leads you. And if you're partnered here, there's gratitude, so much gratitude for that. Secondly would just be this opportunity to go deeper called Embark. And I'll be back here next Saturday, uh, Saturday the 17th from 9 to 2 here on campus at Northland for a five-session experience. We'll look at some videos, dive into some scriptures, have some group discussion, but really go deeper in this journey of generosity. And by the way, um, so the website's up there, northlandchurch.net slash embark. And if you decide to jump in on that, I would just say if you're married with kids, there's childcare available. It's $12 a person and you get food. Uh, So it's the cheapest date morning of your year if you choose to jump in. But I'll be here, and I would love to see some of you there. Again, that's next Saturday. If you can't make it on that quick of a turnaround, we hope we'll offer this class again in the spring, but would love to see you next week.